down in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America Welcome, this is Karen Schoen, and you are listening to The Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. I can't say enough about the Alliance, folks. They are doing amazing things. And if you are not involved in the micro school program, you need to, especially after this past Thanksgiving holiday Thanksgiving is my most, very most favorite holiday. I love all of those smells and I love to cook and I love to make that great big turkey and know that we're going to have turkey for the rest of the rest of the week. But different ways to make turkey dishes and Thanksgiving is always my one of I would have to say my favorite holiday, my favorite American holiday. And listening to the way the left was talking about Thanksgiving made me sick because they really have no idea what Thanksgiving is all about. And that's one of the bad things about our public schools and how they are indoctrinating our children to hate America, hate you, your family, and to hate God. I have asked Bill Federer, who is my go-to person when it comes to history. Bill knows more than most of us have learned in a lifetime. And first of all, I want to thank him for writing all of those wonderful books that he has written. And if you did not go to American Minute, Dot com, his website, and sign up and get his newsletter, you are doing a big disservice. But I have asked Bill to come and explain to us the truth about Thanksgiving. And this way, we will be able to talk to our kids and tell them and understand that what they have been learning in school is really Terrific. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all the hard work and uh, education that you have brought to us. And I'm looking forward to hearing the true story of Thanksgiving. Well, it's great to be with you, Karen. And it is a wonderful story. And one of the things I start with is the big picture. And that's there's 6,000 years of recorded human history, right? Give or take some centuries. Um, <laughs> and the most common form of government is kings. Uh, Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. And as the kingdoms get bigger, because with military advancements, the kings can kill more people. Uh, ultimately, the king of England was the most powerful king on the planet. He was a one-world government guy. With him at the top, the sun never set on the British Empire. He had India, Australia, Bengal, New Zealand, uh, uh, Hong Kong, countries in Africa, you know, Kenya, and, and all the way down to in the interior. Uh, you know, they had the Suez Canal they, uh, and America. So the, the king of England was a globalist. 
And um, matter of fact, any one of these kings would have been happy to rule the world if they hadn't have died. Um, and so Genghis Khan, he kills 30 million people from Korea to Hungary and and then Tamerlane and Ivan the Terrible and Napoleon. And, um, and so um, when the pilgrim story starts, you have to believe the way your king believes. Otherwise, it's treason. Even the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, bow to my statue or I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And so that's the norm. You have to believe the way the king does. And then the Reformation starts in 1517. And you have large amounts of population within a country believing something other than what the king believes. And so numerous incidences. One is 1571, Spain stops the Muslims on the Mediterranean, Battle of Lepanto. But in 1572, Spain sends the Iron Duke of Alba to commit the Spanish Fury, where he kills 10,000 in Antwerp, Holland, because they were Dutch Reformed. And then the King of Spain, Philip II, sends his armada to smash the Reformation in England. It's uh, luckily for them, the hurricane destroyed the Spanish armada. But in 1572, the Queen of France... Uh, her husband died. She's ruling France through her young son. He was uh, first, uh, there's a 14-year-old son that he marries to Mary Queen of Scots of Scotland. She's 16. After two years, he dies. And rather than Mary Queen of Scots be the 16-year-old queen, Catherine de' Medici puts her on a, um, uh, you know, I guess a, a carriage and then a boat and sends her back to Scotland. And then she's ruling France through another son, and then Catherine de' Medici decides to marry her daughter, Margaret, to the main Huguenot Protestant leader, Henry of Navarre. Big wedding in Paris. All the Huguenot leaders are there. A couple days after the wedding, she has her soldiers pull chains across the street so the carriages cannot go out of town. And she sends her men house to house, and they kill 30,000 Protestant leaders. It's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Now, there were also Protestants killing Catholics, and there were Protestants killing Protestants, and there were Catholics killing Catholics. A lot of killing going on at this time. But, um, all right, the Spanish Catholics didn't like the French Catholics, and the Anglican uh, Protestants didn't like the Puritan Protestants, and they didn't like the Presbyterian Protestants. So it was, um, it was a tumultuous time. But in tracing the pilgrim story, uh, you have in the French-speaking area of Switzerland a guy named John Calvin. And he's wrestling with Romans 13. It's a scripture that says, everyone must be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's like, okay, you got bad kings, you got good kings. But what if the king literally has a mandate to kill you? It's like, are you supposed to submit to that? Um, here's my wife and kids, kill them. And so John Calvin writes, we are subject to those who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it. And it's sort of similar to the scripture, Ephesians 6, which says, children, obey your parents. But what if there's a bad parent that tells the kid to sell themselves into prostitution and kill the neighbor? Is the child supposed to obey that parent? No, the, the child obeys the parent as long as the parent's telling them to do something that lines up with God's word. You obey the government as long as the government's telling you to do something that lines up with God's word. I mean, why would God tell you to do, to do something in his word and then tell you to submit to a government that tells you not to do what he just got done telling you to do? 
And so this is similar to Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from the Birmingham jail. Uh, he said, 1963, one may well ask, how can you advocate obeying some laws and breaking others? He said, the answer lies in the fact that there are two kinds of laws, just and unjust. One has not only a moral, but a legal responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. How does one determine whether law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. So you obey the government as long as the government's obeying God. (laughs) Isn't um, that, Bill, isn't that kind of like what we have? It's like what we have in our Constitution, where they have laid out that we have rights that have been given to us by God and that we are to follow those rights given to us by God. And if it doesn't fit, then we're not to obey that. So it's kind of like what the Constitution has been saying. If the laws are bad, then you're nullifying them. You're not supposed to obey them. I think we we really need a big history lesson in our schools. They, this is almost criminal as to how they have twisted our kids' heads. Well, it is. And, uh, and so these Calvinists, followers of John Calvin, uh, who were the Puritans and some to the Presbyterians and to other degrees, def- different other Protestant groups, um, they studied how to have a government without a king. And they called it a covenant form of government. And they got their idea from ancient Israel, the first 400 years out of Egypt before they had King Saul. And so the most common form of government in world history is kings, but there's an anomaly. Around 1400 BC, Israel comes out of Egypt, and for 400 years, they do not have a king. Everybody's taught the law. Everybody's personally accountable to God to follow the law. They were able to keep order with no king. And so this period is called the Hebrew Republic. Now, why is this important? Because the kings of Europe use the Bible for their authority. But they use the King Saul and on part of the Bible, the divine right of kings. God chose me to be the king and I'm anointed. Whereas the Calvinist Puritans looked to the Bible for their authority, but they looked to the pre-King Saul period. There's 400 years, millions of people, no king, and it worked because everybody was taught the law and everybody was personally accountable to God to follow the law. And so King Saul, in a sense, is the divider between England and America. So these Puritans that settled New England, they looked to the Bible, but they looked to this original plan where there was four centuries and no king. And it worked until what? Until the priests stopped teaching the law and every man did what was right in their own eyes. And you had, um, you know, Levite priests, uh, the sons of Eli, and they're sleeping with women in the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then another Levite with a silver graven image and another Levite with a concubine where the law says the Levites to marry a virgin of his own tribe. And, and so they all go to Samuel the prophet and they say this self-government system's not working. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a, a king. And Samuel cries and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you. They rejected me. So God's original plan for ancient Israel was to not have a king, have everybody be taught the law, everybody be accountable to God to follow it. And there's a dozen other aspects of this Hebrew Republic that I talk about in a book. It's called, Who Was the King in America? But Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. Because wherever there's a king, 
you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he will take away the land and kill you. But in Israel, the land was permanently titled to each family. And if you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. And you can give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. Interesting, Karl Marx said, communism can be summed up in a single sentence, abolition of private property. So if you don't own anything, how can you be charitable? How can you give away what you don't have? What, are you going to steal from somebody else and break the law and now you're a thief? No, God entrusts you with stuff. And then he gives you opportunities to show on the outside the love of God that's on the inside. So ancient Israel was the first nation where there's no standing army. You have a king, he has an army. But in Israel, every man was in the militia and armed with a sword upon their thigh and ready at a moment's notice to defend their wife and children and community. And Israel was had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. What's that? Well, in Egypt, you need food. The government will give you food, but it's an exchange for your cattle, your land, your lives. In Israel, you need food. Well, everyone, when they harvest their field, leaves the corners, the, the gleanings for the poor people to pick through like Ruth. So this way, the poor were taken care of in a decentralized manner. And then Israel was the first nation that could read. Only 1% of Egypt could read. 3,000 hieroglyphs. And the scribes kept them complicated on purpose as job security. They were needed as a class to interpret these things. When Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. He has the law in a 22-character alphabet. So easy to learn. Kids could learn it. First letter's a left, second letter Beth. And, um, and so Israel was a literate population. Everybody was taught the law. Everybody helped enforce the law. They had no police. And so the verse everyone knows is Leviticus 19, 18, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. The verse right before it says, confront your neighbor directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. Another translation says, rebuke your neighbor openly so you'll not incur their guilt upon you. So it was a self-policing system. You love your neighbor, but you confront them when they're doing something wrong. And um, so uh, so Israel had this self-government for four centuries. It worked until the priest stopped teaching it, and every man did what was right in their own eyes, and it turned into chaos, and then they go to Samuel, they get their king. So this is the difference between Europe and America. So the kings of Europe were theocrats. You had to believe what they believed or you'd be burnt at the stake. In America, our founder said, no, freedom of conscience. A matter of, so, so those that accuse Christians of wanting to set up a theocracy in America, they know absolutely zero about the founding of the country. Our founders were committed to freedom of conscience. They wanted a government from the consent of the governed, a bottom-up form of government. As a matter of fact, they gave birth to the idea of a bottom-up form of government that turned into our Constitution, we the people. They did not want a top-down form of government with a president ruling through mandates and dictating that your beliefs, that you have to change your belief on marriage to fit in with the new government agenda, or you're going to be penalized. And um, uh, so... So America goes back to this division of um, the King Saul, pre-King Saul versus post-King Saul. Um, so the King of England, 
um, Henry the eighth, he, uh, uh, in 1535 did the oath of supremacy where you had to take an oath that you acknowledge the king as the supreme ruler in all things ecclesiastical you had to admit the king was the head of the church and that was it was considered treason and so you had the king makes the uh book of common prayer so you do not make up your own prayers because you could make up one that's wrong. So the government wrote all the prayers down, put them in a book, the Book of Common Prayer. You feel like reading? You feel like praying? Just open it to the right page and read the prayer. And if you're caught with a group of people making up your own prayers, the FBI, their version of it, will kick in the door and arrest you and drag you away to the star chamber. It's a hearing room in the government building with stars on the ceiling, sort of like a January 6th hearing room. And they would twist your arm and brand you on the face as a heretic and cut off your ear and cut your nose in half and make you confess the stuff you didn't do. And if you didn't testify and kept your mouth shut, then they would throw you in jail uh, anyway for not complying with the court. And then you would just waste away in a cell for days and weeks and months and years. Could you imagine the government doing this to people? Oh, my, I, I, Bill, from what you're saying, this is my mouth is open and I have been very quiet because it, you're talking exactly what's going on today as what went on hundreds of years ago. And it is amazing what lack of education brings us. And that's really, I believe, the root of everything. When you're not educated, how true is it? When you're not educated in the past, you're going to suffer in the future. And from what you are saying, we are following exactly the same path. You can see the similarities. They're glaring. So go on, Bill, because this is fascinating. So throughout the 1600s, now 1620 is when the pilgrims came over. But uh, you had King Ch James and then King Ch his son, King Charles I, and he really began to crack down on the Puritans. Now, the Puritans were inside of the Anglican Church trying to purify it, but the king didn't think he needed any purifying, so he did not like the Puritans. But there were other groups, like the Presbyterians. They were in Scotland. John Knox was one of their main leaders, and they had conventicles comes from the word covenant where two or three are gathered in my name i am there in the midst and so uh you would have your little meeting um and uh then they would bust up your meeting and then they later changed the name of it to the riot act because you could be planning an insurrection in your little bible study so they would kick in the door and pull out a piece of paper and read the riot act that says everyone must immediately disperse or we're going to drag you away to that star chamber and have a false hearing and stick you in a cell and you'll never be seen again. And so someone that was caught during this was John Bunyan. And he spent 12 years in prison and that's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And so when they had the Book of Common Prayer read in Scotland for the first time in the St. Giles Cathedral, a market woman named Jenny Geddes hurls her three-legged stool, and it whacks into the bishop, and it starts the bishop's war, and the people start throwing stuff. And so the king sends its army up there to go to the churches to force them to follow the Book of Common Prayer. And so the pastor says, you know what? We're just going to meet in a field. Well, you know what? The, the government sent its army 
into the fields to chase them down and kill them. It was called the killing time. And it went on all the way up until 1688 when uh, William of Orange came into England. And then he and his wife, Mary, took over, uh, William and Mary. And so um, this was the background. So uh, one of the pilgrim separatists um, that actually was a founder of the Baptist Church was uh, John Merton, and he dies in the Newgate prison. And they didn't give you anything to eat in the English prison. He had to have some friend that missed you and brought you food. And so a friend brought him a bottle of milk, but instead of a cork, it had a wad of paper. And when the guard wasn't around, he took a splinter, dips it in the milk, and he writes out his pamphlets on the, on the paper. The milk dries, it's clear. He folds up the paper, sticks it in the empty bottle. The guard takes it. His friend takes it home, unfolds the paper, holds it above a candle. And the heat of the candle turned the milk brown. And they could read what he wrote, and they typesetted the pamphlets and printed them. And the, the government's like, how's he getting that out of the prison cell? <laughs> so the early Baptists called it the milk of the word. And um, another Baptist founder, Thomas Hellwise, he dies in the Newgate prison and uh, in 1612. And he said, um, the king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore, he hath no power over the mortal soul of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them to set spiritual lords over them. Um, he says... Uh, Basically, if the king can stand there on the day of judgment, then believe whatever he tells you. But if the king's not going to be there on the day of judgment, then you're accountable to God for your own conscience. So the pilgrims, they were a separatist group. They actually branched off of the First Baptist Church in England. Uh, so that was John Smith's church, not the Pocahontas John Smith, a different one. And so uh, branching off of John Smith's Baptist Church is John Robinson's Baptist Church, and that we call them the pilgrims. And um, one group of these pilgrims sell their property they go down to the port. They buy passage on a ship to go to the Netherlands. The Netherlands was seven provinces fighting to break away from Spain. It took 80 years war of independence for the Netherlands to break away from Spain. These seven provinces did not believe the same thing, but they were willing to have some give and take because Spain was a bigger threat because they wanted to kill everybody and that what wasn't submitted. And so the Netherlands was the most tolerant place in all of Europe at the time. They even had Jews there in Leiden, Holland, and who were chased out of Spain. And um, and so the, the pilgrims are going to go there. But right before the ship takes off, the captain robs them, turns them over to the government, and they're thrown in jail for being heretics. Another group of these pilgrim separatists sell their property, and they arrange for a Dutch ship to sail up the coast and they would row out in little boats and get on there and sail away. Great plan, except the pilgrims showed up a day early. And they're in the water, and the waves are rocking, and the kids are getting sick, and the women say, can we just wait on the shore with the kids? And then the Dutch ship shows up. The men row out there, and they're stowing everything on the ship, and then someone snitched, saw the sail, told the police. They come over the hill. They capture the women and children. And the Dutch captain says, I don't have an army with me to fight. And he pulls anchor and sails away with the men. And you can just picture these women and children standing on the shore, watching that boat getting smaller and smaller and disappearing over the horizon. And for two years, they passed those women and children from one court in England to another. They'd have a hearing, they'd be put in a jail cell, they'd be put in a prison cell, they have another hearing over and over again. Finally, a judge says, you didn't do anything wrong, go home. They go, duh, we sold our homes. 
So just to get them out of their hair, they put them on a boat, sent them to Holland, and they were reunited with their husbands. And they settled in a town called Leiden, Holland, where there was a university. And uh, William uh, Brewster was the elder, and he was educated, so he taught English there. And there were even a, a rabbi that was on there at the, the university teaching Hebrew and Aramaic and so forth. And so the uh, pilgrims began to identify with the Jews. And they said, well, you left Egypt and we left England and you crossed the Red Sea and we crossed the English Channel and you look, you got your promised land and we're looking for ours. And, and so that's why they, they taught Hebrew at Yale and Harvard because they, in their writings, they would um, uh, refer to ancient Israel over and over again. Uh, this Hebrew Republic, specifically the first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. And um, and so they think that possibly the uh, Jews celebrated Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the harvest season, and they thought that may have influenced the pilgrims to have the day of Thanksgiving right at the end of the harvest season. So the pilgrims, uh, Spain threatens to attack Holland again. And the kids, they've been there 12 years. The kids are beginning to assimilate into the Dutch culture, and they realize they're just going to be, just turn into Dutch. And so they decide to leave. They were going to go to Guyana in South America because they heard of the perpetual spring, all right, the nice weather, but they heard about the Spanish. Well, okay. they had a 66-day journey and 3,000 miles. Uh, they were in a four-foot-high tween deck, that they were confined to. Uh, the main beam cracks holding up the mast. Uh, they pry it back in place. They get to the shores of America. And uh, they were going to go to Virginia, blown off course, land in Massachusetts, try sailing south. And it's too stormy. So the captain says, everybody off the boat. And the pilgrims say, well, who's going to be in charge? There's no king-appointed person in our group. They do something unique. It's called the Mayflower Compact. It says, we in the presence of God covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. You have a covenant church group turning itself into a political group, right? A church group covenanting itself into a political group. This was a polarity change in the flow of power on planet Earth. So the top-down rule by kings is bottom-up rule by we, just 102 of us in the boat. And, and it's uh, in the womb of the Mayflowers conceived the child of self-government. And it influences the other New England colonies and eventually the U.S. Constitution. And the word federal is Latin for covenant. We have a covenant form of government. But anyway, all this is in a book. It's called The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and How the Pilgrims Escaped It. And my website is AmericanMinute.com. Bill, I can't thank you enough. This is absolutely incredible that people don't know and understand their history. And we are being forced to repeat the same thing over and over again as the globalists um, are following what the kings did. If you don't believe me, we're going to put you in jail. We see that happening all the time. And because you're so wonderful, Bill, you're going to have to come back and give us another lesson very soon. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. 
formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Well, the OutLoud truth was the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.news was an idea, a movement, a place where folks would feel comfortable speaking the truth without being censored or canceled. The First Amendment is alive and well. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back, everyone. This is Karen Schoen. You're listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. I also have to give a plug to an, an organization that I have belonged to for a very long time, and it's called WeTheKids.us. This is a history lesson for our children in multiple directions, multiple media directions. Judy Lane is the uh, president of We The Kids. She has done an amazing job over the last 10 years. And please take a look at what We The Kids are doing. One of the things that I loved about We The Kids is that they are using uh, Lydia Nuttall's 
book called Forgotten American Stories and talking about real American heroes, which we don't seem to have anymore. All we have are animated figures. How does your child learn to have a hero who is an animated figure in society? That's not reality. That's not real. But We the Kids brings history to life. And we just learned in the last segment how much of our missing history we are copying today. And sadly, it's not the good part. It's the bad part. So I have asked, and I won't say old friend because she's a longtime friend, Um, to join me today, and her name is Ileana Dr. Ileana Johnson. She, I met her because she was a writer like I was. She writes, she's the senior editor for a wonderful paper that you should sign up and get, and that's the Canada Free Press. I love the articles in there. They are absolutely right on target. And she's also a commentator and a speaker, and is from a communist country, Romania, I believe, and knows firsthand what's going on in America. So we had the history lesson from Bill. We learned that we're emulating the past, not the good part of it. And now we're going to talk about today, what's current, what's going on in the rest of the world. I read a fabulous article about the the new president of Ecuador, who also seems to be a populist. Isn't that wonderful? He believes in Ecuador first. That is fantastic. Fantastic. And he is now going to be outlawing the decriminalization of drugs and bringing drugs to where they belong, a criminal offense. He even said that in the last 10 years, all Ecuador has done was to create a generation of addicts. How sad is that? And we see that happening in America as well. So, Ileana, thank you so much for joining me today. It is always wonderful to be talking to you. And you are in the D.C. area. um, But what's going on in D.C.? I mean, I'm reading horrible things about uh, constantly uh, where there are carjackings. They said almost a thousand this year. Um, D.C. used to be a fairly safe, beautiful city. I've been there many times, but the last time I was there, I saw so many tent homelessness, it was heartbreaking. Well, well, thank you for having me, uh, Karen. Again, I appreciate that. And yes, D.C. is so horrible because I, I, because of homelessness and crime that I don't even dare go anymore. And I used to love to go to all the free museums. I've been to every one of them, but I always like to revisit them. I just don't want to go. I don't want to be robbed. I don't want to be uh, beaten. And I don't want uh, my car, uh, Jack. So I don't go anymore. I stay in my quote-unquote, relatively safe subdivision. However, uh, all the subdivisions are becoming now more criminal with all the extra invasion of illegal aliens who seem to be attracted to our county, where since the last census, we've had a 40% population increase, and it was all attributed to illegal uh, illegal aliens coming here 
And now I don't know what this uh, other census is going to say, but they're just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they do cost taxpayers all over the country about $132 billion per year. They're a tremendous burden on education, on social services, uh, medical care. They pay no taxes. They get Social Security as soon as they set foot in the country. They bring diseases that were previously eradicated in this country to schools and to the population at large. They bring unknown diseases that TB has skyrocketed. They uh, they break all the immigration laws, so we have become kind of lawless at the border. They bring in cartels, fentanyl. Kids are uh, having overdose in middle schools around here and high schools from fentanyl. And they live kind of in the ghettos of their own making. They don't speak English. They don't care to learn. Some of them are illiterate in their own countries. Uh, They speak weird dialects, but they vote. So it's diluting the American votes and the American way of life. And I am totally against it. I am for legal immigration. They vote? You mean the illegals are voting? How is that possible? I mean, I thought... Although uh, we did learn that in Florida, yes, you have to be a citizen in order to vote, but nobody's checking. So if you register in Florida to vote, there's a little box and it says, are you a citizen? And if you check yes, you have to show your driver's license, which has no designation as to your country of origin and whether or not you are a citizen. So who's fooling who? I was not aware that this was going on all over the country. Uh, it this, is. This is a, a horrific thing to happen as foreigners are going to determine who our leaders are going to be. And once yeah. that happens, well, you have experienced that. Once that happens and the communists get a foothold, it will be hundreds of years before we get rid of them. Would yeah, you well, say? At this point, we cannot get rid of them because they had said that they have a perfect system of cheating at the ballot box, not just through this mailing voting for 45 days with all these ballots, but also with computers. Uh, They can be hacked and they're hacked all the time. It takes about a program of a hundred words to flip votes. So I know that as soon as I get into the precinct and vote, my vote is nullified by probably 10 different illegal aliens who shouldn't be voting, who don't know what's going on in the country, don't know the politicians, don't know the issues, and they don't really care. They just want the freebies. They think gringos are crazy. I understand what they say, and I have heard the talk in the streets. Uh, We think we're crazy because we're giving them everything, and why should they work? They can pretend to work just like under communism, at least under communism, we knew the situation and everybody got a measly sum of money. We pretended to work and they pretended to pay us. But these people get more money than any retiree in this country. The moment they set foot in our country, why there are elderly people who have to make a hard decision whether they're going to eat this or uh, buy this drug or have enough money to buy gas or whatever else. 
these people don't have to make these decisions. They get free housing. They get um, uh, free phones, uh, prepaid and everything. They get free electricity. Um, they get over 3000 a month. And the more kids they have, the more they get. They get uh, free medical care, no questions asked. It's just a free-for-all for all the people who are invading the southern border. And it doesn't seem like our government is doing anything about it to stop it. Oh, well, that says to me that they like being in power and they're not about to do anything to change being in power. And being in power is more important than having a country. And yeah, I, I think uh, the idea of open borders is nothing new because they don't they believe that they don't have to have elected governments, that the United Nations will make the laws and everybody in the world will follow the same law. So therefore, what do you need a border? Why is that important? Why is a country important? Why should we have one flag? We should have one universal flag for the world and it should be denoting the United Nations. Am I on the right track, do you think? Um I think you are. It's it's sad. Uh, you know, you asked the question about, well, mentioned the election at Ecuador. People are getting fed up, but not fast enough. It happened in Argentina. Uh, it happened in the Dutch election. They, uh, Gerd Wilder's Party of Freedom captured 37 seats in the November 22nd election this year which is the biggest far-right political victory since World War II. Uh, the previous cabinet collapsed precisely over immigration policies. Um, the elections were actually not due until 2025, so uh, they took place now. Um, uh, then uh, Javier Millet, the uh, so-called anarcho-capitalist in Argentina, he is an anti-established politician, but he has some kind of provocative policy proposals and statements. I don't know how he's going to implement them. He is an economist. He had proposed to dollarize the economy uh, and to eliminate the Argentine central bank. Well, if you look at our dollar, which is becoming less worthless by the day through out of control printing and spending by Congress uh, and our uh, Federal Reserve Bank, uh, which is led by this lady who should be in academia, not in government. Um, but he wants to dollarize his economy in order to kill hyperinflation. I don't know if that's going to work, frankly. Um, he wants to make the U.S. dollar the national currency in place of the, I think, Argentinian is the peso. Uh, yes, the it value. is. Uh, is, the value of the peso, he said, quote, was melting like blocks of ice in the Sahara, uh, unquote. So I don't know if it's going to work, but what we shall see. I know that people in Netherlands are fed up, the farmers, because they're not allowed to farm because of these burdensome regulation with nitrogen fertilizer and all of that. And uh, they're trying to kill all the small farmers and the government to take over, just like they're doing here. They're killing all the small farmers and allowing the mega corporations to become farming corporations. And they're allowing people like Bill Gates to be the largest agricultural uh, landholder in the U.S. And that is 
primarily the master plan for humanity's agenda 21 which they want to control the land in this country they um president biden said by 2025 he wants to control 30% the government that is to control 30% of the land in the US and by 2050 50% of the land that doesn't bode well for agriculture and for people's ability to eat no so and I you know um i have a, a very important thing that everybody should be doing now because uh produce and products, food products have changed so dramatically in the last year. Start reading the labels because now I'm seeing on more and more produce, more and more food products that they say uh, combined with bioengineered food. You don't want to eat that, folks. That's food coming out of a laboratory. And that's where all of these poisons and all of, I believe, a lot of these diseases stem from. So if they can't get you by withholding food, they're going to get you by poisoning the food. Their goal is depopulation by any means possible. We've been talking about that for a long time. This is nothing new, is it, Elena? No, it's not. If you look at the ingredients on a lot of boxed stuff, you'll be shocked that it has Latin words for cricket powder, mealworm powder, and other bugs, other insects, but it's in Latin. So if you don't know Latin, you have no idea what it is. So you're assuming, oh, it's some kind of chemical preservative, but it isn't. It's bugs in the form of powder. And I even saw uh, you know, bioengineer product labels now put on Godiva chocolate. I was buying some the other day and I thought, wow, that's interesting. Um, anyway, it's basically they want to control the land food production and feed us these. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie Soil and Green, which is was a little bit ahead of its time, but you never know what they're going to put in food next. Yes, oh. and that's a good, that is something that everybody, if you have not seen that, just like 1984, go and see it. And another one to see would be Atlas Shrugged, because sometimes I think we're living in Atlas Shrugged, as they are deliberately destroying our energy sources, knowing full well, because reports have been coming out over and over again, that if they take away the cold, we're going to decrease our electricity. So many people will die. But if you understand their goal of depopulation, it's, oh, so what? We'll lose some people. That's okay. We don't care. We don't want them anyway. And this is the way these people think. And this is nothing new for communists, is it, Elena? They have been killing people for years and years and years. Of course, they don't really care. And, you know, back to the land and private property, they want to take private property from people. And um, they will eventually force us to live in rental properties, two or three families to an apartment, just like we did when I was growing up. And they're already doing it now in New York, apparently, uh, their way to resolve the issue of housing because of all this influx of illegal aliens is to offer 395 k to people to build an apartment in their garage in the basement 
uh, in order to deal with the shortage of housing. And they're taking money away from education budget and other um, and other services that they should be offering to American citizen New Yorkers, but they're not. Um, so basically they're taking private property, whether it's homes or uh, whether it's land, any which they can. The main excuse for taking the land is through Agenda 21. Uh, and uh, they want to preserve the land uh, to save the planet from uh, some imaginary Armageddon that they come up with. Um, and unfortunately, I listened uh, yesterday to the uh, cattle uh, ranchers association from New Mexico, and he was talking about how fast the government is, was buying land from New Mexico, and they cannot compete with the government offered prices. They can't out, outbid them, and they even are going after marginal land, which in out west, marginal land is uh, best suited for animal grazing and recreation. But the government is taking grazing out. They are blocking or reserving water. So if you can't have water for your animals, they're going to die. You can't have agriculture. Um, and the water is taken for urban areas or for conservation. And then they also bribe people with conservation easements, which is how they locked a lot of the agricultural land in Virginia. Um, they let people buy a farm, but under the conservation easement, they can't develop it in any way. It has to stay as is pristine, untouched. Then he was talking about the petroleum fields, which were quite uh, uh, rich in New Mexico, uh, are being reduced, the yields and all that, because of anti-fuel, anti-fossil fuel activities and regulations. And where does the money come from to buy all this land, which he was quoting like $92 million to buy all these properties. Um, it's coming from the federal government and some of these NGOs. Um, and how do they, when they use the Endangered Species Act to lock up land, um, for example, he was talking about the Mexican gray wolf in New Mexico. They can't kill it. Uh, and they have multiplied out of whack and they kind of, wolves kill for sport, not just to eat. So that's one way to kill their cattle. Um, and of course, people in many states have to uh, encounter this Endangered Species Act uh, when it comes to agriculture, or uh, they have some uh, like a little rain puddle. Oh, it's a marshy area. Nothing can be done for miles around. Um, this so is unbelievable. And folks, if the Constitution was actually taught, which we know it's not. The federal government is not supposed to own any land. I don't, it doesn't matter what act they put in place. The land belongs to we the people, and it is really state owned land. The state is supposed to control the land with the people. The federal government has no right to own it. They have no right to sell it. And they certainly have no right to sell it to a foreign entity, which is another thing that they're doing. So they are systematically selling off pieces of America, pieces of our land, of our natural resources, of our agricultural uh, endeavors. They are selling them to foreign countries. Why? 
because the foreign countries are lacking in that resource and they're sending it home to their country. In Arizona, they're sending land, they're sending the produce and everything back to Saudi Arabia. Actually, they were sending water back to Saudi Arabia. So if we don't understand what our government is supposed to do, and we don't start controlling our state government, and through the word nullification says no federal government this is not part of your 18 enumerated powers you are not allowed to do that you cannot have that land you cannot sell that land you cannot buy that land then this is what is going to happen to America. And we're going to watch America slowly, very slowly dissipate until there is no America left. But I think the kids, the children are beginning to realize as they are graduating college or stepping out into their life after high school, that they're not going to be able to buy anything. They're not going to be able to own anything. And I don't think that makes them happy. And I think that they we may be facing a wake-up call, which is, again, through education. So I think that is really where we need to start and end. It is with education. Wouldn't you I say? You're right. I, 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 I didn't interrupt. No, that's okay. It's, it's Anyway, I think you're right. If we don't change the education system, it has turned so Marxist, it's uh, be beyond uh, salvation at this moment. Be and nobody seems to make many waves about their poor education of their children. They are graduating Marxists. Why are you paying $100,000 a year for them to get an education that they cannot get a job with and they uh, and, and it's turning them into hardcore Marxists. All this um, land stuff and education and everything started back in 1972. Richard Nixon created the EPA in 73. And then there was uh, one guy named Stuart Udall. Nobody learns about it in school. Uh, at a UN conference in 72, he developed a comprehensive planning nationwide, and it has been growing and growing slowly. And it picked up more steam in 1992 in Rio. And what basically what it is, besides turning these kids into Marxists, is teaching them that you cannot treat land as an ordinary asset. It cannot be controlled by individuals. Uh, it has to end and it has to be controlled by government, including the wealth. Uh, so this is Marxism. That's what they did to us. They took our land away. They took our homes away. They forced everybody in cooperative. Uh, they had to work for peanuts and they got a small percentage of their work at the end of the crop season. The government got the lion's share. And who was the government? the Communist Party, and all the elites at the top. Just like today, the elites are going to live well and they're going to do everything that they tell us not to do. They want us to stay home. They want us to eat bugs while they fly all over the world and they live high on the horse. And that is communism. And if we don't teach these kids in school that, we're done. But we have to teach teachers to be Americans, because they're Marxists too. They have your kids eight hours a day. 
Yes, and that's why homeschooling is absolutely utmost important. And folks, if you think that Donald Trump is the answer, you're only very, very partially right because he can't do it alone. We have to be able to work within our local governments and get the local governments educated that know when the government, the feds come in and they say, we're going to give you a grant. If you just give us this piece of property, we'll, we'll give you a grant. We'll give you the money. You have to be able to say no. You have to be educated in your own local community and in your state. Because if we are not, then everything, as we have learned, that Donald Trump would do can be under done in the next election cycle. I want to thank you so much, Juliana, for joining me and ask you if you'll come back again because your insight is so valuable. I certainly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Karen. And I would love to come back anytime. Okay. Folks, you have been listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. We must get involved. Sitting on the sidelines will guarantee that we lose our country. And I will leave you with this question. Is America worth saving? If so, what are you going to do? Thank you all for listening. See you again next week.